My partner and I spend a lot of time apart visiting extended family. We email, send texts, photos, videos, and we talk nearly every day on FaceTime. 14th August 2023 at 8.08, North Uist, Outer Hebrides, Scotland. Hello, Dal. I feel like I've been here for ages. We went to the Snoot supermarket in Ben Becula, McLennan's. It's easy and it costs us virtually nothing. But only because we're not paying the true cost. Sydney, Australia. Hi, darling. I hope Keith arrived safely and all is well at Willie's house. I've been enjoying the antics of one of our regular visitors, a large kookaburra. The digital world has fueled amazing advances in all kinds of fields. Yet it seems like an ethereal place. Emails and images shooting through cyberspace at the click of a button. It's 21st century magic. And it's almost impossible to imagine how much data is swirling around the planet. French journalist Guillaume Pitron uses water as a metaphorical measure. By his calculations, if one drop of water represents one byte of data, those two emails Chaz and I exchanged would be worth one full glass. Multiply that by millions of emails sent every minute around the world and you can start to visualise the tsunami of data headed our way. But every photo we share, every social media post we make, every Google search is only possible because of huge amounts of raw materials, electricity and real water that make up internet infrastructure. Carbon emissions generated by the digital world are growing faster than those from any other sector. It means our virtual reality is actually very dirty. I'm Wendy Frew. In this episode of Think Sustainability, we ask how much damage our online lives are doing to the planet and why no one is talking about it. How's your digital hygiene? <laughs> um, <laughs> no comment. Um, yes, I do regular clean out of my email. I have a massive Dropbox folder, which has got a lot of photos in it. I've got way too many photos on my phone, uh, which I'm anxious about. That's Dr. Jess McLean, a senior lecturer in geography at Macquarie University. Jess studies how people, digital technology and the environment interact. Some people reckon digital technology will provide the solutions to our environmental dilemmas. Remember the promise of the paperless office, the smart city? But that's not always the case. In fact, the whole way we think and talk about the digital world, virtual reality, cyberspace, the immaterial world, the cloud, is obscuring its real-world impact. That distinction between real and not real is pretty striking still, I think. We have these metaphors that are slippery and that binary framing of the digital and not digital is deeply problematic when digital worlds are so entangled with non-digital worlds now. The introduction of things like Alexa in our homes where we have these actual pods that are gathering data and sharing data and getting information from us and giving information back and, and that has to go somewhere, right? But it's perhaps not interesting to think about the infrastructure that these particular devices are situated within. We just want to use them uh, and that makes perfect sense. They might be convenient, they might look like they're fixing a problem, but they also generate their own problems as well. We worry about how much time our kids spend on their devices, about the dangers of social media, about what blue light might be doing to our eyesight. But few of us think about the environmental impact of digital technology. 
Or if we do, it's how smart meters control energy use in our homes or how electric cars cut transport emissions. The companies who make digital devices don't want to remind us about the resources that support all of this technology. It's not particularly convenient for corporations to be exposing themselves as environmental vandals in some way. Uh, You want to buy a product that's clean and green. If Apple or Google are saying that they use carbon offsets, that they're going to be carbon neutral, then that's an attractive selling component of their work. But I do think it's really interesting that the metaphors, the framings, the the discourses that we have, all the tools that we have at hand for framing the digital, uh, do tend to obfuscate and disguise the actual Um, impacts of the digital technologies that we're using. I think overlying all of that is this assumption that the digital is a more environmentally sound solution than lots of other things. So you mentioned before that the promise of the paperless office and, and I remember when that was a part of my early work as well. And, you know, those kind of formulations of what the digital is, that if we have open data, if we have more information, then therefore we'll make better environmental management decisions. Therefore, our politics around environmental issues will be stronger. Therefore, our understanding of environmental issues will be better. Those keep being perpetuated. And it's worrying because we've had information for years around, say, climate change, around biodiversity loss. We know that these systems are under pressure, that the world is experiencing these multiple environmental crises. And yet we keep going, oh, we just need more information or we need more open data to manage these things rather than actually making the hard political decisions to say, well, let's regulate differently. Let's manage things differently. Uh, Let's perhaps approach this from another perspective and think differently about our our very consistently digitally unsustainable lives. So where does our digital foot take its first step? Like most things in modern life, it's in the mining sector. The whole commodity chain of a digital thing like a smartphone includes uh, the extraction of rare minerals from mines, potentially all over the world, um, but often people are working in really um, difficult conditions. Their livelihoods are not being very well supported, especially if um, it's in the global south. There's also the e-waste at the end of our you know, digital tools. What happens after your thing doesn't work anymore and who is responsible for that? But then there's also the maintenance of our digital things. So we have to use energy to charge them. Of course, the energy use goes way beyond charging our devices processing and sending data all around the world, liking a Facebook post, watching a cat video, uses a lot of electricity. About two-thirds of the world's population has access to the internet, and we're all swiping and googling like there's no tomorrow. Remember the glass of water analogy? That was just a drop in the ocean. Streaming it to our film is way more intensive, worth one large tank of water. Most of us think twice before wasting water. And we turn the lights off when we leave a room. But our digital consumption is almost instinctive. Sometimes we like something just to be polite to a friend we haven't seen for a while. It's almost a social compulsion. And thanks to the portability of our phones, that digital connection is at hand all the time. So should we all digitally detox to save the planet? I wanted to get off Facebook 10 years ago, but then people were putting photos of my kid on there and I was like, oh, I have to be on there so that I can see what's happening and and also so I could be invited to events and things. So so we're enlisted in these systems, but 
it is true that when you like something, then that contributes to energy consumption. And if it is the case that your phone is using electricity that's come from coal-fired power stations, then that is a deleterious impact for increasing climate change. But I'm always cautious to say that actually we're a part of these bigger structures, these bigger systems, and those people managing those systems, those institutions, those corporations have quite significant power over how they work. And for instance, imagine if big tech all got together and said, we're going to make this completely environmentally sustainable. We're going to make sure that our devices last for a longer period of time, that they are uh, all built from ethically sourced materials, uh, that we actually are a part of this responsible production and consumption of the digital and that governments were regulating that, we'd have quite a different situation. You could perhaps approach those digital practices with less guilt. Let's go back to those two emails. They travelled from Sydney to Scotland and back, not through the air on a cloud, not even via satellite. They travelled on what has been described as the largest infrastructure ever made, a network of concrete, fibre and steel with its feet solidly planted in the real world. A large part of that network is subterranean. Because almost all of our data actually travel underwater, along gigantic amphibious highways of fibre optic strands. At either end of the journey, data stops at a number of industrial scale operations. You might never have seen them, but you'll have heard of them. They're called data centres, and data centres are a big part of the problem. The biggest one, I think, is in China. These are massive, energy-hungry, water-hungry structures. Yep. And you have to have those to like the Facebook post. There's one up near Macquarie Uni that looks just like a, another factory just around the corner. You know, they don't have big signs saying, I am a data centre. They're all over the place. They're in deserts in North America. And, and yes, they do require water for cooling and they require energy for maintaining themselves. If you send an email, then that has to come via this complicated digital infrastructure that's including data centres. And, and so in terms of the energy consumption of the digital, it's about 50% sits with data centres, which is pretty significant. It's equivalent of global aviation. I, I think that we have, a, I know we have an exponential uh, internet usage around the world. So, you know, this data is a few years old now and I'd suggest that there's been no peeling back in terms of our, our digital consumption. Companies and institutions used to store their data on site in their own servers, but increasingly they're outsourcing this. What we're seeing now is the the development of these sort of hyperscale data centres and the big players are moving into this. And when we talk about the cloud, as it's it's uh, it, it in the end is these mega factories basically, uh, which are the the places which you all the information. So every time we do a Google search, every time we're using the internet, and the and the memory is stored there is in these big data centres. The the size of these now these large data centres are the, essentially the size of you know small regional towns in terms of the energy that they consume. Gordon Noble is a research director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. He likens data centres to human bodies. They need a lot of energy, they create huge amount of heat, and they need huge amounts of water to cool themselves. The first data centre Facebook built outside of the US was in far north Sweden, where winter averages about minus 20 degrees Celsius. 
Freezing air from outside is pumped into the building to cool the servers. Ireland's cool temperatures have attracted data centre operators too, so much so that authorities are starting to worry their energy use might destabilise the Republic's electricity grid. They're pretty soulless in the sense that there's, there's these racks and they need to be kept at a certain temperature. This is very much like the human body, so they need to be maintained at a certain stable temperature. So essentially you don't get a lot of light. Um, you're, in, you're in sort of rooms where it's all dark and it's um, kept at sort of a stable stable temperature. So so a data centre wants to, to keep as, uh, as cool as we do as humans, so 20 to 23 degrees. So it's one of the issues that's been recognised uh, globally around where you locate a data centre has implications in terms of your sustainability. So in the US, for instance, where you've got data centres on the west coast, you've got a lot of water risks in those areas, but you've got data centres in the east coast that don't. So so water, the, the water management and the, the, the water that's effectively demanded to keep the, the uh, data centres running and keeping cool, the energy that uh, effectively is needed, is a significant sustainability uh, uh, issue for, uh, for data centres. In Australia, demand for data centres is surging. Good example here in Sydney, we've got Microsoft out in Kemp's Creek in Western Sydney. They're, they're about to build a new data centre and this will be $1.7-$1.8 billion. There's significant amounts of capital that, that go into these. We as a society demand a lot of data, we use a lot of technology, so that, that is also a driver of demand for data centres. And do they tap into the normal electricity grid? Yeah, and some of the big hyperscaler operators, they've got commitments to renewable energy, which is a good thing. We want to see that. Um, now, the challenge is whether you do that on the on the site or whether you do it by having a, a an agreement to purchase energy because it's very difficult to meet all your energy needs on the site through solar, for instance. You tend to see agreements, so agreements to purchase renewable energy. We would want to see that data centres all are 100% renewable, um, but that's not the end of the story in terms of energy. It's also there's a story around its peak demand and, and, and how the energy translates and when it's needed. This big extra demand on the system at peak times, and we're going into a, a very hot summer, when we'll also potentially all be turning our air conditioners on on certain days. So what could that mean? What we know from a climate science perspective is we know that we are facing days of peak extreme weather. And we know that there's a there's a, a link between increase of extreme heat days and mortality. So just a 1% increase in, in temperature has an increased uh, incidence of mortality and morbidity. So if, if we see a scenario in the future of a 45 degree to 50 degree day, which is highly plausible, what we have is the challenge that a lot of the data centres are, are, are all in the, if you like, the urban fringes of cities. So the same day that we're, we're demanding uh, energy for, for our air conditioners to keep us uh, cool is the same day that the data centre is, is demanding more uh, energy to run. Data centres can minimise their energy use. In Singapore, for example, the government has mandated that over the next few years, operators must increase the temperature inside data centres from about 22 degrees Celsius now to 26 degrees. Those four degrees translate into a massive saving for the island's electricity grid. What will happen in Australia if the government doesn't mandate such energy savings? Is there a risk that on certain days we'll have to make a choice between cooling homes and cooling data centres. 
if we plan ahead, we, we shouldn't have to, you know, we should have the systems and processes in place so that doesn't happen. But if we don't, uh, that's the danger that we hit a 50 degree day and we haven't done, we haven't got the systems in place to say to the data centre, right, you need to manage your energy on these days. We, we shouldn't ever get to that stage, but we have to make some active decisions. Research done by Gordon and his ISF colleagues reveals there's an alarming lack of information available to Australian businesses about carbon emissions from IT and data centres. Sustainability managers know their companies need to cut energy consumption, but they don't have the detailed information they need to do it. We are sustainability professionals, and these are people whose day-to-day jobs are managing sustainability, so for corporates, for government, uh, for the financial system. And we we asked them what did they know about the increased demand for um, uh, data centres. And the the positive side is that 81% of our respondents to the survey said yes, we expect there will be increased amount. The concern from our our survey was that only 5% of the respondents, sustainability professionals, thought that they were receiving the the quality information that they needed from data centre operators so that they can make decisions. And what does that mean? I guess it means, say, for a corporate, say they're making a decision around whether to invest in a new AI technology, and there's a lot of hype around that. You know, part of that decision-making process should be an understanding as to what that means in terms of energy. We currently know that data centres are 1% of um, global emissions, but the projections are by 2040 that uh, data centres and all their uh, the software-related uses could amount to 14% of global emissions. So we've got a, a situation where we're trying to decarbonise, the corporates are decarbonising at the same time as we're seeing uh, a, a massive increase in a new, new area that will consume energy. The IT sector's insatiable appetite for electricity isn't being addressed by most organisations. And it seems the federal government isn't paying attention either. In July, Environment Minister Chris Bowen announced plans for carbon emission cuts in six sectors. Electricity and energy, industry, the built environment, agriculture and land, transport and resources. The sector with the fastest growing emissions, IT and data, was nowhere to be seen. The advent of artificial intelligence is a key driver of the IT sector's surging demand for electricity. AI is being incorporated into everything from cryptocurrencies to the Internet of Things. The 14% projection is around all the software-related applications. So, for instance, when... When we do a Google search, it's not just the data centre, it's the fact that we're consuming energy uh, you know, in the transmission of that data. It's also our computers, etc. It's also the use of the, the software. So AI would be driving more of that, more usage, and it's quite intensive. So a lot of energy use behind that processing. There'd be things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. And I guess also the just the increasing digitalisation of life. So fridges are becoming digital, of course, cars and all the little gadgets and devices. But everything we do increasingly is not paper bound. It's, you know, it's electronic, it's digital. It is. And we, and this is part of the argument with, with AI technology. There's a lack of, if you like, transparency information yet as to, you know, how much this causes in terms of the energy consumption. So there's there's bits and pieces of information and research around this globally, but we really don't have a, a full picture. We literally don't really know quite all the applications of AI. And we want to explore those, but we want to explore them with open eyes. 
Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, there's a couple of other things to think about. Duplication and dark data. Let's take duplication first. Duplicate data occurs when the same data entries are stored more than once in a data storage system or across multiple systems. Sometimes this is done on purpose, sometimes by accident. Then there are the data centres themselves. Some companies duplicate their data centres on other continents to ensure against earthquakes or terrorist attacks. The price tag comes with a duplication of water and energy use. The information that enters a data centre isn't always transitory, like my emails to Scotland. Lots of data is stored and then forgotten about. And that's got to change, says Jess McLean. The data management practices of various organisations is a big part of how, how they work now. But some of the practices probably do need to change. Professor Tom Jackson was describing how we've got single-use stored data that's kept on a file and may never even be accessed again. And he calls that dark data. And that dark data has a really significant environmental impact because it's got to be stored in these data centres. And then, and that's because of the institutional rules around preserving data and making sure that that data is accessible potentially at one point in the future. But it's really significant because it exists for all organisations all around the world that we've got this dark data. And he talks about how we need to have digital decarbonisation. So the dark data could just be old data, almost like archives. We would have had paper archives, old invoices, I don't know, old communication between customers we no longer have or whatever. An old essay that someone wrote, you know, 10 years ago and sitting in a Dropbox file that doesn't ever get accessed again and it's just there. (laughs) But it's not just in the Dropbox folder, it's in a data centre. Uh, and so to keep it alive, so to speak, mm. it, it's it's using energy, using energy. It's using water. Yeah. yeah. And and then also all the things within the data center have to be maintained. So data centers throw out, um, you know, the computers and wires and replace them. So the infrastructure within a data center needs to be maintained as well. So you've got those energy components, the water components, but then you've also got the hard infrastructure within them that needs to be churned and replaced or just like every other part of our digital infrastructure. And some data centre operators replicate their data centres on another continent, don't they, in case of earthquakes or terrorist attack. And if I'm right in my understanding, those second data centres, which are literally replicating everything, are on all the time as insurance. They're not necessarily doing anything other than being a replication of the first data centre on the other continent, which is like, blows your mind. It blows your mind and also makes you think about things like digital shadows, you know, how how we have these replicated presences like the dark data or the the second data centre. We we think that we need these backups, these these endless uh, opportunities to make sure the digital is safe and protected and, and inviolable. But then there are also consequences that are overlooked because we think, you know, that security issue or that um, convenience issue is more important than the environmental impact or uh, assessing whether we actually do absolutely require it. So next time you grab your phone to kill a bit of time on social media, you might want to think twice. Thanks to Jess McLean and Gordon Noble for talking to me. 
This episode was made possible because of the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney. It was recorded in Sydney on Gadigal land. You can listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Wendy Frew. Thanks for listening.